Thank you for listening to this selection from bradhambrick.com. Brad serves as pastor of counseling at the Summit Church in Durham, North Carolina, and is excited to produce resources that equip believers and resource churches to care well for one another in their community. We pray that this serves you well, and we hope that you'll consider utilizing other resources from bradhambrick.com for your personal growth and ministry endeavors. Conflict. Can't we just avoid this subject? Uh, I mean, that's what we do at home, right? Uh, And so, I mean, do we really need to spend this much time uh, on the subject of conflict? Wouldn't it just be more fun uh, if we talked about something nicer, more interesting? Uh, Well, uh, honestly, I don't think that would serve us well. Uh, And I would even take it a step further. Uh, Because this is going to be one of the points that undergirds everything that we're going to say. Uh, Admittedly, uh, it may come across as a little outlandish, uh, but I hope by the time we finished our time together, uh, you get how true this statement is. And it would simply be this. Conflict done well can be the best friend of your marriage. If we do conflict well, uh, that can be the best friend of our marriage. Now, this is not some version of fight hard and make up hard and that somehow we just need to have a good fuss so we know how much we appreciate one another and we come together more passionately after that. But uh, if we think about it, anger, anger basically says two things. This is wrong and it matters. Uh, and, when, and when we honor someone in the midst of conflict, then what we're saying is this is wrong and it matters, but not more than you, not more than us. We are still safe even when this comes between us. Now, when we do conflict poorly, uh, when we begin to engage conflict sinfully, we make a third statement. This is wrong and it matters more than you. And so if we can get to the point where in our conflict that, that things really do go wrong and we don't have to pretend like they don't and we really do see things differently and there's moments when we're not on the same page and, and that's important to us and we, we don't have to have this kind of Pollyanna view that it doesn't really matter. But as we go into these subjects, we can avoid the point to where this subject matters more than our marriage then our moments of conflict stand to become something that are very romantic and bonding within our marriage. And so as we look at that, uh, let's start with a quote from Paul Tripp to get us started. He says, The Bible nowhere calls us to grin and bear it for the sake of the relationship. In fact, I am persuaded that our silence in the face of wrong is not motivated by a desire to love the other person well but by not wanting to go through the hassle of the difficult process of being a kind and loving confrontation. We are silent, not because we love our spouse, but because we love ourselves. And we do not want to put ourselves through something uncomfortable. And oftentimes when you come to a presentation on communication and we begin to engage a subject like conflict, we pick up with how to do conflict well. 
Well, I think that skips an important question, which would be, how do we decide if this is a a conversation, a discussion uh, that we need to have? How do we know whether this is one we should just set aside or whether it's one that we should engage? And so the first question we need to ask, uh, to sound a bit Shakespearean, is to speak or not to speak. Uh, That is the question. And too often what I think we do is we don't make a well-reasoned, biblically-informed decision. We just go with our personality. If I'm an avoidant person, then it's probably best just not to deal with that. Uh, If I'm one of those people who says, if you don't deal with it, it's going to come up again. We just ought to deal with it. Then I am making that decision sheerly on the force and momentum of my personality and in no way asking, how would God guide me and what would best serve my marriage in this situation? So what I want to do is to walk us through seven possibilities when something goes off in a marriage. All seven are biblical. So it's not as if we're going, ah, which of these is the biblical way to do conflict? As if there was just one biblical way to deal with something when a couple's at odds. All of these are biblically acceptable options uh, that we choose based upon wisdom, which is the best fit for this circumstance. And so the first of those uh, would simply be to give grace and overlook. Uh, This is the kind of thing that it's talking about in Matthew 7, 1 and 2, uh, where it says, uh, give grace, that with the measure you use, it will be measured against you. Uh, Or Proverbs 19, 11, it's to a man's glory to overlook an offense. Uh, This is is what makes a marriage feel safe. Uh, That everything that doesn't go just the way that I want it to go, just the way that I think it should, I don't have to address that. There are times when I give grace simply because it doesn't warrant the attention or I can tell this is something that is important to you. And so I I just defer in that. But there's times, it's almost as if in that Matthew 7 conversation, uh, somebody raised their hand and said, Jesus, I, I totally get what you're saying, that you know, with the measure we use, we should measure to others, we don't need to judge, and, and that kind of thing. But there's times, like with people who are close to me, that whatever's going on, it, just, it doesn't feel like it's going to get better if I don't say something. So what do we do? Jesus, that's a good question. Uh, take the log out of your own eye before you take the speck out of somebody else's uh, eye. Or as we've said it here, confess as you address. Uh, that we, we want to model the response that we would like from our spouse in the way that we engage the conversation. And so when I come and I say, well, I really think this is something that needs to be different. Whatever I should own or whatever I've contributed, uh, I need to bring that up front. So that aspect of being humble, Uh, teachable, moldable, uh, I am modeling as I bring it up. Now, uh, there is kind of that next level, uh, that at times as a couple, we should seek counsel. Um, You know, just like no one of us is good at everything, as a couple, we're not going to be good at everything. There's going to be certain things where we go, you know, we just, I'm not sure we get this real well. And, And so, you know, Galatians 6.2, to bear one another's burdens, or Proverbs 11.14, where there is wisdom in a multitude of counselors, where 
uh, we just go to other couples and say, what do you think about this? I mean, these are the kinds of conversations that ought to be happening in our small groups. Uh, within the premarital mentor ministry that we have, this is why we want every young couple in our church uh, to have a mentor couple. So during that first year when they're trying to figure out ah, you know, all of this stuff that we're not on the same page about, who could we ask to give us some guidance? We want them to have a mentor couple that, uh, that has gotten to know them during their engagement, uh, that these kinds of questions can be asked. Now, uh, I would say uh, the vast majority of marital conflicts should be handled in those first three styles of interaction. Uh, but not all of them will be handled there. Uh, there's also times when uh, we confront and call to change. Because one of our operating definitions of marriage is that every marriage is two sinners in covenant with one another. And so there's going to be times when uh, my wife will come to me and say, Honey, I just don't think you handled that well. And it, it doesn't seem like you see that. And I, I, I love you and I want... I want to bring that to your attention. Can we talk about this? Uh, because I really think it's something that needs to change. Uh, now, when that happens, it should be a moral offense. Uh, we don't confront and call to change merely to meet our preferences. Um, this is, if we're going to use that stronger tone of confrontation, then it should be something that's wrong, not just something that we like. Uh, now, after that, I think another option that Scripture gives us and calls us to is to be long-suffering. Uh, this is kind of that disposition at the end of Romans 12. Um, and I think what we get from that is we recognize there's no prize at the end of this journey. Uh, for us to rush to the end of where we're going in this progression, honestly, the prize is in the early stages when we can deal with it there. And so there's times when we, um, when we give time uh, for that confrontation and call to change, uh, for God to move in our spouse's heart. And, and we're not moving through this as quickly as we can. There may be times when we confront and involve others. Uh, again, this is moving a bit more into a, a church discipline motif. Uh, and I would say that if we're involving others, uh, that those others should be those who have some sense of spiritual authority uh, or relational gravity in our spouse's life. So be a small group leader, an elder, uh, or a trusted friend who would come and, and that they would be willing to hear in that kind of situation. Uh, and then finally, um, there is a time when we can distance ourselves for the purpose of safety. Uh, now again, most of these latter stages are outside of what we're covering in this material. Uh, the Gospel-Centered Marriage series that we're doing uh, is meant to be a premarital preparation and a marriage enrichment material. Uh, when you start hitting stages, especially six and seven, uh, you're talking about marriage restoration material. Uh, and that's one where I think being involved in some personal counseling would be highly advisable. Or even looking at the material that we did uh, on the chronically self-centered spouse that's available there in your notebook is something to give you guidance on that. But uh, let's assume... Uh, that for a moment we decided this is something that we should address. This is something that we should talk about. How do we go about uh, engaging that conversation? Uh, I think Winston Smith helps us see that. He says, Conflict 
far from being a sign of moral or marital failure, is God's chosen means of rescuing people and destroying sin. Don't lose sight of this fact. God will rescue us and marriage through conflict. Uh, And so conflict here doesn't necessarily mean nasty conversation. It doesn't mean raised voices and cutting words. It just means we're not on the same page and we need to talk about it. And I think one of the first things that often gets overlooked is just figuring out, what are we fighting about? Uh, what, what kind of conversation are we having? Uh, and to help us see that, uh, if, you will, uh, if you will allow me to go into uh, a brief lesson in Greek rhetoric, uh, I think they did a great job in helping people understand the kind of differences uh, that we have. And whenever I teach something like this, I can't help but think back to C.S. Lewis, uh, where he would, in a moment like this, he would say, what are they teaching in schools these days? Uh, because this kind of interpersonal skill of trying to figure out where we differ and what kind of conversation that we're having is the kind of thing that we just don't teach anywhere anymore, um, but I think is very useful. So I want to walk through the different kinds of differences that we can have and then give a case study that I think will make it kind of pop off the page and you go, ah, I get that now. And so as we go through these, uh, we're going to go through them in order from the hardest to rectify to the easiest. And so we can have uh, factual differences where we just disagree on the facts. And if a husband and wife disagree on the facts, that means we have a major compromise in trust. Because if we disagree on facts, there's only one of two options. Either you're lying or you're crazy. If we disagree on facts, that's the only thing that can be in play. I never said that. Okay, either we're lying or we're crazy. I I didn't spend that money. I don't know where it went. Okay, those are factual differences. So at that level, we either have an issue of character or just gross life mismanagement. So either it's we lack the character to engage with integrity or we're we're managing life so sloppily that we can't get the basic information that we need to navigate this conversation. Now, if we, maybe we don't disagree on facts. That next level, we can disagree on definitions. Was what I said, was that really disrespectful? Did that action really communicate that I don't love you? I wasn't trying to say we couldn't have sex when we did that. Those are the kinds of moments where the the disagreement that we have is on definitions. What did that mean? Now, it shouldn't surprise us that two people who have different experiences of the same event and came from different backgrounds, uh, that these two people can have different understandings of what things mean. But oftentimes in marriage, it does surprise us. And even more than surprise us, it offends us to the point that we become combative and ineffective in our communication. And so what would be that next level of difference? Uh, We could differ in our values. Is A worth B? Uh, Is this amount of time 
that we would have to commit worth the benefit that it provides? Is this level of sacrifice worth the outcome that we would get? Is this fun activity worth the cost that we would have to give in order to engage it? And so, if, if you find that you're disagreeing at this level, I think a great way to engage that conversation is just to ask your spouse, if we did A, what is the B that it would change in your life? What is its outcome? What is its effect on you? So that we begin to understand not just what A would do for us, but what B would mean for them. Uh, And then finally, uh, maybe the easiest to resolve is when we have policy differences. When we just disagree about what we ought to do. And again, in that kind of situation, we can compromise and try to find some middle ground or third way. We can delay the decision until it becomes uh, clearer what we ought to do. Or we can just choose between the variable options. And that kind of thing is what we'll cover more in the seminar on decision making. Uh, But let me give you a moment to just instruct you on what not to do with that material. Don't become super tedious with it. Because it'll begin to feel like your marriage is a business meeting, and you're following parliamentary procedures in order to navigate your differences. And that's just weird, and it's not fun, and nobody likes that. But when you do find that you're not on the same page, begin to work from the bottom up. Figure out, do we disagree on facts? Do we disagree on definitions? Do we disagree on values? And then work your way up from there. So let's use a case study. Let's, let's use the example of we are trying to decide if, when, and what color to paint a bathroom. Uh, which is kind of like a church trying to decide on the color of the carpet. It is one of those epitome decisions that just creates differences. And we go, how does this material help us have a conversation about if, when, and what color to paint a bathroom? Well, the first thing is we need to agree on some facts. How much money do we have to spend? How long do we plan on staying in this house so that we can determine how much it would be wise to spend? Those are fact-level questions. Definitions. Is this a need or a want? Is this something that has to be done just because uh, it's going to decay to the point that our house is in disrepair and the overall cost is going to be greater? Or is this a one? Is this purely an aesthetic thing that we just want our house to be more warm and kind of how we want it to look? Uh, That is uh, that aspect of definition. Values. Maybe the wife is saying, if we're going to do this, I've got a baby shower coming up in two weeks and I'd really like to have this done because if we're going to have people over, I'd like to show it off and for them to be able to see it. And the husband is going, but wait a second, I've already got a golf trip planned next weekend, and I just, I, that's my chance to rest and recreate, and I just don't think it's worth it if we've got to do it before then. Okay, well, those are value differences. Is A worth B? Well, A is worth more if it's done before the baby shower. No, A is worth less if it costs me my golf trip. Those are value differences. And then we get to the policy decision of what color are we going to paint it, and the wife says stripes, and we're like, ah, there's two colors, I have no idea. Um, but, but that's how we're having four different conversations. 
And it may be that one of you is stuck on the definition, is this a want or need? How much do we have to spend? And that's where the conversation. And the other one is having this value and policy to conversation. And we're talking about the same thing, but we're having two totally different conversations. Now, I want to bring us into a tool uh, that I really don't anticipate that you'll use a whole lot, but I think seeing the tool uh, will help you kind of get a visual for what goes on in conversation. But before we do that, let's look at what Dave Harvey has to say. He says, The nature of sin, you see, is war. Sin creates war. War with God, war with others, war within yourself. Mercy doesn't change the need to speak truth. It transforms our motivation. One thing I've learned, I can avert a two-hour argument with two minutes of mercy. That's a win for everybody involved. And so oftentimes when I bring the tool like this conversation log out and I give it to people, they tell me that will take longer. And my, my response is, three minutes spent doing a conversation right is worth 30 minutes of arguments and three days of silence. This is a good deal. Okay? Now again, I readily admit this is not a document you're going to get out twice a day and fill out and take notes on a conversation. What I do want you to begin to see is here is the movement of a conversation. This is what we need to have. These are the pieces. Um, In some ways, if I could compare this document uh, to something, I would compare it to the way that I coach little kids in baseball. Uh, and again, you come to many of these, you know that I love baseball and that kind of thing. And when I, when I coach kids in baseball, I, I take what's called a micro-skills approach. We break a, a larger skill like hitting into its individual pieces and build up from there. And so I am that coach who will bring a tire to practice. And I will set it down and I will have kids stand on the tire, get ready, and swing. Why? Well, because standing on the tire teaches them balance. And if they're balanced when they're swing, they're better. Their head stands still. They can see the ball. They're going to hit it. Uh, And so I begin to teach them that kind of micro skill up, uh, how to hit a baseball. That's what I want you to think of here. This is micro skills of communication. They may look at me and say, Coach, when are we ever going to stand on a tire in the game? This is dumb. And they're right. They won't. But if they will take 50 swings standing on a tire, their sense of balance and their head being still and they're learning to turn their hips without moving their head will do wonders for them in the game. And if you will take the time to look over this and maybe even practice it a few times with your spouse, you will find that what it does for your communication will do wonders. So, top of the page, date, day of the week, that's just because I'm compulsive and I like to be able to put these kinds of things in order, so appease me. Topic. This is where we just decide what it is that we're going to talk about. How many times does conversation go poorly? Because at the beginning of the conversation, we're starting on two different topics. We need to be on the same topic to get anywhere effectively. Now, you may be the spouse who says, there's something that I really want to talk about, and whenever I bring it up, my, my spouse doesn't want to have the conversation. I come back, and it, it winds up feeling like I'm nagging. Here's an idea. You can print one of these off the communication page or just with a piece of paper and say, here's a conversation that I'd like to have. 
when, when you're ready to have this conversation, will you bring this to me? Because it's important to me and I'd like to have that. And then that way, bringing the conversation back up is not dependent upon your verbal reminder, but you've given a physical reminder that they can keep with them and they can think it through and even maybe make a few notes and go, okay, this is, this is what I'm thinking on this conversation. And it's a more effective way to get into that uh, than verbal reminder, which often comes across uh, as nagging. Uh, now you'll see we've got differences in fact, definition, value, and policy. That's the material that we were just looking at. That if this is a difficult conversation and we're trying to figure out where we are, it's just a reminder to bring that back up. Discussion notes. Uh, this is not a place to get a dictation of everything that was said. You don't go, slow down, say that again, how do you spell that word? None of that kind of thing. This is just simply a point where you get the big ideas of what each person is saying. And that's going to do two very important things for your communication. It's going to slow you down so that you're actually thinking about what are the major points that each of us are saying and it's going to force you to restate and implement a lot of those skills that we talked about in the area of listening. Now, come up with me to guidelines for communication. This is just some protocols to get into it. First thing that I would advise, if we're going to have a conversation that's difficult enough that we would get a piece of paper like this out, pray before starting. So much of doing conflict well is just placing conflict conflict in its context. When we're in conflict, it feels like conflict is the entire world. It feels like it is everything and swallowing us up. If we take a moment and say, God, this is what we're struggling with. We want to do it well. All of a sudden, that conflict gets contextualized in terms of God's presence with us and our relationship with Him. And we've just radically shifted our mindset going into that conflict. Um, second piece here, honor one another by fairly representing each other in tone and content. Um, I don't really like this quote from Gary Thomas, but I think it's true and needed. He says, the failure to show respect, uh, the word we were using was honor, is a sign of immaturity more than an inevitable pathway of marriage. And so I think a statement that we need to hear, if I fail to honor you in communication, that is nothing but a sign of immaturity on my part. And I need to own that and not blame that on anything else. Remain seated. Now that may say, sound kind of goofy, but two things happen when we move around in communication, especially if it's tense. First, it communicates that we're not paying attention. And so our spouse has to speak in such a way to gain our attention, which elevates the force of what they're saying. And if we're in the midst of conflict, we want to do everything we can to keep that level of force down. And so by sitting down and giving each other our attention, we're subverting that dynamic. The second thing is, especially if we're prone to anger, uh, it, the more we move, especially if we make uh, demonstrative movements where we're flailing our arms or getting upset, what begins to happen is we engage the adrenal system. 
uh, we're getting this energy boost of adrenaline because when we start moving the large muscles of our body, it is kicking in. The emotions that we feel, even as we're getting upset, kind of has that system of our body on edge, ready to fire. And we just don't want any adrenaline when we're trying to do conflict well. Because adrenaline is like a microphone to the emotions. So we want to keep that quelled. Avoid body language that communicates anger or withdrawal. Again, that's so much of what we were talking about with the listening comes into play there. And if you're at loss for words, simply say thank you. If you're at that point and you don't know what to say and you're staring at your spouse with your mouth open, just say thank you. Thank you for your patience. Thank you for having this conversation in a way that protects and honors for our marriage. Thank you for waiting for me as I figure out what, I, what it is I need to say. Thank you for, for not getting upset with me right now. Just find something that says thank you to your spouse that expresses honor and contextualizes this, that we're on the same team and we're not against one another. Progression of an idol, uh, that's what we're going to cover next. Uh, but a lot of what we'll cover in that next section is just a spot for you to write down what things are in play in each of those areas. Future topics. Uh, I, I used to say that this is what we use to kill the rabbits. Uh, you know, all those little rabbits we want to chase in conversation, but then people would get really upset with me because that's violent imagery and it's not PC. And, and so this isn't where we kill the rabbits. This is the nice little cage where we put the rabbits. And there's like food and water and no rabbits are going to be harmed because they go here. But when we're talking about that golf trip and what we're going to do and how we plan our calendar and I didn't know you were going on that and we need to talk about those things, this is where we put the nice little bunny so that they can be safe, that we can come back to them and later doesn't mean never. Um, this is where we put those things so that we can finish one conversation before we begin the next. And then action steps and decisions. This is where we put what we decided so that we know what it is that we decided. Uh, and we don't come back later and go, I thought we were painting the bathroom this weekend. No, I told you I was playing golf. Uh, this is where we can put what it was that we said uh, that we were going to do. And so what I want you to see from this is this is how we begin to allow a conversation to have a beginning and a middle and an end. Instead of, in the midst of conflict, we have a beginning and another beginning and a middle and a beginning and a middle to the beginning that started back there and another middle and a beginning and then we have an end to something and we forgot where that went. And the conversation becomes so disjointed that neither one of us really remembers much of what was said as we went through it. So, uh, now, I think we can all realize that the struggles that we have in conflict are not caused by CLDD, Conversation Log Deficiency Disorder. Uh, that is not the cause of our conflict. But I, side note, when you're a counselor and you get a microphone and you can stand on stage, you can give anything with the letter disor with disorder on the end of it and make initials for it, and it sounds really official. Uh, but it, what we face in conflict is not caused because we didn't have a document like this. It's caused because of those things that go on uh, within our heart. 
And that's what I want us to look at, that little section of a progression of an idol. Uh, Dennis Rainey helps us get started with that. He says, Buried expectations can poison a relationship. Unresolved expectations often lead to demands, and demands lead to manipulation. One person maneuvers the other to meet the expectations while the other tries to avoid it. Inevitably, this leads to isolation in marriage. With two people playing absurd but dangerous games in an attempt to establish control. In words like manipulation and control, they can be strong words. But they are what are in play when we are not honoring one another in our conflict. And so in this progression of an idol, really what I wanted to do is I want us to walk through James chapter 4. Where James starts with the question, what causes conflicts? What causes fights? What causes quarrels among you? Is it not this, that your desires are at war within you? Uh, You want and do not have, and so you devour one another. Um, And so, the beginning point of conflict is simply, I desire. There's something that I want. And usually, it's a good thing. I mean, most people that I have come to me for marriage counseling, they are not upset because their spouse won't let them run a drug cartel or rob a bank. Uh, The kinds of things that they fight over is, I would like a little more respect, appreciation, affection. Really good things, good desires. And they begin to think, if if it's not bad for me to want blank, then how can what I'm doing after that be wrong? And I want us to see what happens to those good desires in the process. Because at the beginning, we seem like very reasonable people. So, here's my premise. This is the big picture of human motivation. People do what they do to get what they want. It's a simple statement, but I think it's very profound. People do what they do to get what they want. Why do we fight? Why do we quarrel? What causes differences among us? Is it not this, that your desires are at war within you? There are certain things that we want bad enough that I get to the spot where I'm willing to sin against you in order to get it. And that's the kind of thing Winston Smith is pointing out. He says, notice that the things that control your life may not only be those things that you pursue, but also the things that you avoid. For instance, rejection can be an idol. It can be that thing that we build our life around in the same way as approval. And so what happens is that desire becomes a demand. It becomes something that I do not think I can live without. And we hear it in our language when it shifts from I want, I would like, to I need. I just need for you to do blank. And what happens when we move from the language of desire to need, is I move from wanting to enjoy life with you to expecting life from you. 
I want what you do for me to satisfy my soul and set me at peace. And if you just did this, I would not have any negative emotions. I wouldn't sin. My world would be right. I just need for you to do this. And you not doing it is going to explain whatever bad thing I may do in response to it. And when that happens, whatever I do is explained by what you don't do. I'm innocent. You're guilty. I'm reasonable. You're unreasonable. And the entire framing of the conversation has become broken from that point forward. And here's the really sad thing. Once I demand something, I can't even enjoy it once I get it. Once I say, I need some respect. I need to start hearing some thank you and some appreciation around here. As soon as I say that, even if my spouse or my kids try to respond in a way to do what I ask, I can't enjoy it. There's no satisfaction in it. That's everything that Jesus was talking about in Luke 9, 23 and 24. He said, if you seek to save your life, you'll lose it. If you try to make it happen, if you say, this is what I need, and I'm going to impose the force to make sure it happens, I lose it. I can't even enjoy it when I get it. But if you're willing to lose your life for my sake in the gospel, if I am willing to put your desires ahead of my own, and I can express what it is that I am after, and entrust, defer until we can get there, then I can really enjoy it as it happens. And so that desire becomes a demand, and then I use it to judge. And this really weird thing happens. Whatever that desire is, starts to play every role that only God ought to play in my life it begins to determine what is right and wrong. If this gets me respect, then it's right. If it doesn't get me respect, it's wrong. It starts to define what is worth my time and not worth my time. Is this going to be appreciated? Then I'll do it. If it's not going to be appreciated, then I won't. It begins to determine friend and foe. This desire becomes the lens through which I see my world and it defines everything in my life that God was meant to define. And usually once I begin to judge, one of those ways that I punish you after that is I begin to use trait names. And that's the subject of Winston Smith's quote here. He says, trait names and exaggerations work the same way and have a similar effect. Both, in effect, reduce a spouse's identity to his or her sinful behavior. Trait names and exaggerations communicate, you are no more and no better than what you've just done. And so what is the end outcome from desire to demand to judge? It's I punish. I find some way to begin to change you to what I want. And this is the spot where if at the beginning we looked very reasonable, by the end we seem pink elephant crazy. I mean, this is where we're raising our voice and calling names and silent treatment, not talking to one another for days, and the way that we portray what the other person says, that's not what I said at all, and we're just, who is this person that I'm talking to? 
Because that desire has morphed and totally changed the way that we see everything to the point that we are starting to lose our moral sanity, as we'll look at in the next chapter. In the notebook, I cover several ways that we can punish. I just want to touch on a few here. Uh, One is trait names. Uh, Another is exaggeration. Words like always, only, never, told you a thousand times. Misdirection. This one can be a subtle and dangerous one. It's where you bring me one conversation and I change it to something else where I create a lose-lose scenario for you and I've got you either way. Either uh, you go with my new conversation and you totally forget what you were talking about and I win because I got you on this other conversation. Or you speak up and try to bring me back and then you're just nagging and you won't get off this subject. How many times are you going to bring it up? So misdirection, I got you either way. Or uh, another way that we can punish is with a double bind. Now double bind sounds technical. It's not that complicated. It's when we ask for two things that are mutually exclusive. So think about a parent having a difficult conversation with their child. And you can tell the child is struggling. Uh, and they're, uh, they're at that point where if they say something, it's not going to be real nice. And so uh, the parent says, talk to me when I talk to you. Don't you talk back to me. Double bind. In the same conversation, I'm asking for two things. Uh, in a marriage, it may come across like this. It may be a spouse who wants nicer things. But then they also want their spouse to stay home more so they can spend more time together. And so I want you to work more so that we can have some nicer things so we can retire this debt. But I also want you to be home more and I don't want these things to get neglected that are important to me. And oftentimes the one who is punishing, they don't even realize they're creating a double bind. They just know in that moment, whichever side of their desire is being aggravated isn't being met. And so they start making these very forceful things that seem perfectly reasonable that don't get along with one another. Uh, And this is where if we can slow the conversation down, if we can listen to one another well, if we can maintain the humility to actually hear what the other person is saying when they feel defeated or confused by what we're asking, uh, then we will get along much better in our communication.